Well, welcome listeners. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Uh, well, listener, you know, if you've clicked on this podcast, hoping for a detailed discussion of Lawrence Fishburne's Matrix character <laughs> and whether or not he should go to hell, oh, maybe a little bit off course, <laughs> but stick around because we don't think you'll be disappointed because what we do have for you in this episode is a couple of candidates from the dark side of mythology, mm. both perhaps dark horses in their own ways, uh, to come out of retirement as part of our super friends pantheon and start to save this troubled world. And at some point, we probably will talk about Lawrence Fishburne and the Land of the Dead, but just maybe not at the same time. There may so. be some crossover, though, so I like that. Okay. Right. It's never a bad time to talk about Lawrence Fishburne, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited already. Yes. Uh, but we also have a couple of firsts. Our first god from the underworld mm-hmm. with Hades, who is the king of, uh, taking it down below. Right. And uh, we're going to explore a different part of Greco-Roman mythology with Morpheus is our first time stepping outside of the Cronus and Rhea derived Olympian line. Mm-hmm. We're going to meet some of the cousins. Interesting. In the, uh, so we're branching out from the family tree a little bit. Yeah, we're going to meet some cousins. So <laughs> uh, let's get started. Uh, this is, oh, you had something to say about it. I, quickly, yeah. I mean, so we had another piece of listener mail uh, this week that I wanted to just call attention to. Okay. Um, the longtime listener goes all the way back to the beginning of the series. Yeah. And he writes, Fun. guys, I made the mistake of listening to God versus God episode three while rocking my daughter to sleep the other night. Oh, My yeah. belly laughs shook her awake twice. Keep up the good work and consider adding a warning to future episodes. So I appreciate that. That's good advice. Yeah. It's a little surprising um, given that this podcast in just a few short episodes has really covered, I think, a lot of dangerous territory we've covered. Yes. You know, there's been dismemberment. There's been mass murder of children, uh, impregnation by a snake like twice. Right. The flaying most recently of a half man, half God for the crime of substandard flute playing so a lot of dangerous subject matter but so far the most dangerous effect we've really had in the real world is keeping a toddler awake because of belly laughs yeah well so so a warning i guess then consider yourself warned that's right so if you are enjoying the program with your younger children keep them away from your belly um and and i will say andrew by saying that i am foreshadowing part two in which a particular god does not keep his children close to his own belly but we'll have to put a greco-roman style pin in that and hold it because you're going okay. first tonight. So that's right. Yeah, so warning let's get commissioned, please, by all means. So let's get it started. This is God versus God, episode four of season one, Greco Roman style, Morpheus and the Oneri versus Hades. There's like a little backup band in there. Yeah, nice. yes, exactly. So uh, I'm going to start us off with Morpheus. Uh, but before we get too far into Morpheus, uh, we're going to need to discuss the aforementioned Oniri. Yes. So what style of music did they play? Uh, what did they peek at on the charts? But no. <laughs> uh, Morpheus is the god of dreams. Uh, and he's also one of the Oniri. Uh, the Oniri are a group of brothers. Uh, and they were daemons or minor deities mm. that brought dreams to mortals as well as shaped dreams. They're uh, what we call the dream daemons. So uh, there were a large number of Oniri brothers, 
according to Ovid, there were as many as the trees bear leaves or as grains of sand are thrown ashore. So countless, yeah. countless Oneri brothers. A single Oneri, that, that's the plural, by the way. Thank it's you. called Oneros. Hmm. And uh, they were pictured as dark-winged men or sort of men-adjacent type <laughs> creatures, but they could also change shape, uh, as we'll see. Morpheus is generally held to be either the leader of the Oneri, uh, or at least the best among them. Okay. So, uh, however, at no point are we giving any account of, you know, administrative duties that Morpheus <laughs> might have had. There's, sure. no, there's no standing with a clipboard <laughs> or giving out assignments, pep talks. Yeah, leadership know, is hard. Like, like, yeah, let's be creative out there. You know, unless you're in the recurring dream crew, in which case, just, just keep at it. So. Keep coming. Keep pumping them out. Yep. yep. Um, but that said, uh, it also becomes clear that their father, Hypnos, or Somna in the Roman tradition, uh, the god of sleep, wasn't up to the leadership job too much. We'll see that coming up. Um, the Neri uh, go way back in the Greek tradition, uh, but an individual Aneros named Morpheus is a later and possibly Roman addition. Um, however, some of the earlier accounts we have of individual Neros fit uh, very well with the description we later get of Morpheus. So some people sort of backfill that, oh yeah, that was Morpheus, just poet didn't uh, know his name. So we just, yeah, we didn't have, a, have him down yet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he also has two other named brothers uh, among the grains of sand, uh, Phantosis, who mimicked inanimate objects and was associated with surreal kind of crazy dreams mm. and Icelus, who also goes by the name of Phobiter, who took the form of animals and is associated with nightmares. Uh, so those are the three that have names. The other ones uh, just remained, remained nameless. You know, and as I said in the intro, uh, the Oneri do not come from the Cronus and Rhea Olympic line. Instead, they come from the primordial line of Erebus, or darkness, and Nyx, the goddess of night. Uh, so Erebus, like, literally is darkness. Yeah. That's, that's, that's their grandfather. That's, that's what you get, yep. Yeah, yeah. He, he is darkness. He's a place and a being. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Nyx is the goddess of night. And from those two, uh, we get Thanatos, Who's mm -hmm. the god of death? Yes. Hypnos, uh, who's the father of the Aeneid and the god of sleep. Uh, Eris, who's the god of strife. Moros, the god of doom. Mm. Nemesis, uh, the goddess of retribution. The fates, the river sticks, and many more. But I think you can kind of see you can see the theme going. Uh, this is the goth side of yeah. the Olympic gods. This is a, one of the darker uh, family reunions I can picture. Yeah. Yes, yeah, maybe a little. Little thick black eyeliner. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like Moros is probably has a Sisters of Mercy poster up on the wall. You know, go go on and on about Floodland if you let him. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe Thanatos is into death metal. That seems that's that's, that's a no brainer. Yeah, yeah, that, that just goes without saying. <laughs> uh, so the Neri are either directly, they could be directly from Knight, uh, from Nyx or the grandkids, which is most common. Uh, 
most common family tree. Um, so the Neri, they shape dreams, they carry direct messages from the gods, and they could also carry prophecies, uh, but they were not always uh, reliable. <laughs> so in the Odyssey, uh, we have Penelope, who's Odysseus' wife, mm -hmm. uh, relates a dream to a disguised Odysseus. This is towards the end of the books where he's come back, but is still disguised. Um, and in this dream, an eagle kills 20 geese who are eating her grain. Um, and in the dream, at first, Penelope cries because seeing all her geese get killed. But then the eagle helpfully flies back. So this may have been Icelus, who was the one who uh, mimicked animals. Uh, helpfully flies back, breaks the fourth wall, and interprets the dream for her. He says, he says listen, the geese are the suitors. I, the eagle, am your husband, Odysseus. Oh my and goodness. I'm going to return, and I'm going to kill the suitors. That is, and, that's a multi-layered performance there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, just, just so there's no misunderstanding, <laughs> this is exactly what this little play uh, was supposed to be. And, you know, and the disguised Odysseus says, yep, that's, that's what I, or that's, I'm sure that's what he's going to do. So, <laughs> um, but Penelope says, dreams verily are baffling and unclear of meaning. This one, to be fair, seemed pretty direct. Uh, the interpretation <laughs> certainly did. You can you can yeah. read some symbolism at the beginning, but uh, once that fourth wall gets broken, yeah, once, once it, it spells it out, I've never I never had one of those. But <laughs> but she does go on to say uh, that there are two gates that the Oniri pass through to deliver dreams. Uh, those Oniri that pass through the gate of ivory uh, deceive the dreamer and deliver false dreams. Yes, but the Oniri that pass through the polished horn gate. Uh, deliver true prophecies, but of course, there's no way of knowing which gate they came through. Uh, so we have the ivory gate for deceptive dreams, and the horn gate for true or prophetic dreams. And uh, I believe these are flowing from the underworld through these gates up to the land of men. That's the that's the the there, course of action, as I understand. Yeah, they're, they're from wherever they come from. The the palace moves around in different myths. One of mm -hmm. which is that it is in the suburbs of uh hell okay just outside it's yeah. just outside it's in sure. a, a, a near suburb um you know kind of a cicero kind of area <laughs> and then uh <laughs> then the other one is it's it's in hades itself and, and another that it's in some sort of far off land uh at the edge of the world okay so uh you know it's it's land of dreams Maybe maybe it moves around. Who knows? That's right. Could be. Could be. Yeah. So um, again, the ivory dream, ivory gate for deceptive dreams, horn gate for pr prophetic dreams, and apparently this had some sort of pun value in ancient Greek, which has mm. been very much lost. It's lost on, on the likes of us. Okay. Yes. Yes. But at the lost. time, it was a it was a real kicker. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Of course. Um, real dad joke by Homer. <laughs> so, um, why do we have true dreams? And false dreams. Why not just have prophetic dreams? One may ask. Fair question. I would ask that. Um, and we get the answer from Aesop, who I don't think we've uh, talked about uh, before, but he's the famous Greek fable writer. Right. Uh, and he writes that Apollo once asked Zeus to give him the power of foresight <laughs> so that he could be the best oracle. Zeus agreed. But when Apollo was then able to provoke the wonder of mankind, 
he began to think that he was better than all the other gods, and he treated them with even greater arrogance than he had before. Which is saying something. Yeah, yeah which is saying something. This angered Zeus, and he was Apollo's superior, after all. Yes. Uh, so Zeus didn't want Apollo to have so much power over people. He came up with a plan. And his plan was to give the Oniri true, to create the uh, horn gate, to give Oniri the power of prophecy. And at this time, only true dreams. So, you know, people start having true dreams and they all come true and they stop going to the oracles because, you know, you don't need them. You can just, instead of taking a trip, bribing a priest, stand in line, oh, that just totally take a nap. Yeah, it's right. That's right. Yeah, it just totally boom. breaks the racket apart. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can imagine this is much better than any of the delivery services we even have today. You just take a nap and there you go. It comes right to you. That's uh, so Apollo was upset by this. Uh, he humbles himself before Zeus. He apologizes. He asks Zeus not to subvert his prophetic powers. Um, but as we discussed last week in the mythological world, there's no backsies. Nope. So you no can't take backs. You can't take the prophetic power away. Nope. So what he does is gives them false dreams. Yes. So now they, while they still have the power of prophecy, there are enough false dreams mixed in that they're no longer reliable, and people have to return to Apollo, and his monopoly is maintained. So a little little economic lesson for that's them. fascinating, and it's almost almost has a sort of governmental check and balance aspect of it too, like. Sure, you can have the power to do this, but ultimately, you'll, that power will be checked by a different, yes. different entity. Yeah, yeah. So fascinating uh, how these 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 the mythical creatures. I'm sorry, these these ancient creatures were so good at both making up rules and immediately finding ways to skirt them. Yes, yes, yes. They 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 did that definitely. Um, well, the the Neri, as I said, were also direct messengers for the gods, and we get an example of that from uh, the Iliad, where Zeus uh, uses a Neros. That and this one is, he's na not named in the Iliad, but retrospectively is, is associated with Mor with Morpheus. So we're gonna, you know, give this one to Morpheus here. Sure. So uh, Zeus is seeking at this time to take down the leader of the Greeks, Agamemnon, take him down a peg or two, mm. uh, and humble him a little bit uh, because of a feud that he has with Achilles uh, and uh, Achilles' mother Thetis. Um, so he wants to humble. Agamemnon. So his plan is to take Morpheus uh, down to Agamemnon with a false vision. So Morpheus flies down to Agamemnon's tent, takes the shape of Agamemnon's best friend, and visits him in a dream and tells him that uh, Zeus and the gods care for him, the Greeks, and all the Greeks are now on their side. Hera has won them over. Mm -hmm. So if the Greeks attack the next morning, They'll just walk into Troy, uh, be able to sack the whole city, and the war will end. Uh, now, total lie, but Agamemnon <laughs> believes him. Sure. And he convinces all the Greeks they don't need Achilles. They can just go in uh, and attack. And then the Greeks suffer a bloody, uh, bloody defeat and realize that, oh, yeah, we do need our best fighter, Achilles. So, <laughs> so dream warfare. That is, that is a masterful yeah. tactic. Yeah, a little, little uh, uh, smoke and cloaks and dagger uh, mm -hmm. there by Zeus. Um, so, this is the one story we actually get 
of Morpheus from classical times. And it comes from our old friend Ovid in his epic, The Metamorphosis. And uh, this is from book one of, or, I'm sorry, book 11 of The Metamorphosis. Uh, the story starts with King Saix, king of Traken, who was also the son of Lucifer. Hmm. And of course, Lucifer is, this case is the god of the morning star and not uh, Satan. Right. Uh, so, but Saix, uh, the king is troubled because his brother, uh, due to a long trail of godly misdeeds and mortal hubris, has gotten himself turned into a hawk. Um, you know, which happens. Yeah, I mean, hubris takes you to some some strange places. So yeah, I believe. Yeah. yeah, as one does. Uh, so he's troubled by this. You know, his brother's transformation wants to know if there's anything he can mm -hmm. uh, do to reverse it. And his idea is to travel to see an oracle, uh, looking for some answers. Uh, but his wife Alcyone, uh, who they're the two of them are very much in love, and she has a phobia of the sea uh, mm -hmm. due to all the shipwrecks she saw as a child. Um, which, you know, arguably was rational back in that day because yeah. traveling by boat was uh, fairly dangerous. Mm -hmm. So she begs her husband not to go. Even though he loves his wife, he, you know, he feels compelled. He needs answers. He's got to go see the Oracle. Um, so all I can do is promise that, uh, swear by the light of my father that I will return to you as long as the fates allow it. Mm. Which, foreshadowing, the fates are, are not going to The fates are going to have their say there, yeah. Yeah, they definitely are. Uh, so they have a long, tearful goodbye scene. And then, as I said, the fates don't allow it. And about halfway out, the ship hits a violent storm, suddenly mm -hmm. uh, is not prepared for it. Big wave crashes over the ship, drives it down uh, into the water. And most of the crew goes down immediately with the ship, other than Saix, who's paddling around in the middle of the Mediterranean for a bit until whispering his wife's name, he too goes under no. and dies. Yeah, so. Tragic. Good. Yes, yes, very tragic. But Alcyone is unaware of this. Hmm. Uh, she's very nervous for her husband, but she's still hopeful, thinks he uh, could be alive or thinks he is alive. So she's constantly going to the local temples and praying for the safe return of her husband. Uh, and this is from Ovid directly. says, she piously offers incense to all of the gods, but worships mostly at Juno's temple, mm. uh, coming to the altars for a man who is no more, hoping her husband is safe and returning to her. So eventually, Juno gets tired of Alcyone coming to pray for this dead guy. It's, it's kind of a drag, you know. <laughs> not a lot she <laughs> not the appointment for. in your day you look forward to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she would prefer to have Alcyone cleared out and have some more practical prayers, you know, right. something a little more actionable. Mm -hmm. So she goes to Iris, uh, who I don't think we've met before, but she is the goddess of the rainbow and one of the messengers of the gods. Uh, and she tells Iris to go to the halls of sleep and order Somna, which is the Roman version of Hypna, to send a dream in the shape of Alcyone's husband and tell her he's dead. And, you know, by the way, leave Juno alone. Yeah. If you could. Yeah. So uh, Iris does. Um, she travels uh, to the far off land. Uh, where Ovid has uh, the the sleep palace uh, located. Uh, the palace lies at the heart of a hollow mountain in eternal darkness, covered in a fog and half-light emanating from the ground. Uh, the palace has you know, no farm animals, no dogs, no people around. Uh, there aren't even any doors 
mm. around so that there are no creaking hinges that might wake people up. Wow. It's total silence other than the soft murmur of a gentle brook off of the river Lathe, which is the river of forgetfulness. Mm -hmm. So this is just total, total sleep environment. Um, uh, Iris flies in, uh, and her, her light sort of lights up the room, uh, and, and awakens Somna, uh, which takes a little bit of doing apparently. Um, she relays, uh, Juno's commands and, uh, says, uh, sleep, uh, from a throng of a thousand sons, his father roused Morpheus, a master craftsman and simulator of human forms. No one else is as clever at expressing the movement, features, and sound of speech. He depicts the clothes and the usual accents. Mm. He alone imitates human beings. I, you know, I don't know what, he doesn't do the unusual accents, but he does all the, all the usual ones. The usual ones. He's got a, yeah. a decent repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. And then Iris has to leave uh, immediately then because uh, the power of sleep is so powerful that she finds herself getting drowsy and she needs to get out before she too uh, sure. succumbs. So uh, we also get a little introduction to uh, Fobiter and Fantassos. Uh, and then it says, uh, these are the ones that show themselves by night to kings and generals. The rest wander among citizens and commoners. Old Somnus passed them by, choosing one of all these brothers, Morpheus, to carry out the commands of Iris. And relaxing again to sweet drowsiness, his head drooped, and he fell asleep deep in his bed. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Somna, he's out. That's he's, out. he's gone. <laughs> that's it for the day. His day's done. Um, so Morpheus... Uh, has some work to do. He flies to the palace in Traxus, uh, flying through the shadows on noiseless wings. He lands in Alcyone's bedroom. And then shedding his wings, he takes the shape of Saix, pale like the dead and naked. He stands before his unfortunate wife's bed and appears with sodden beard and seawater dripping from his matted hair. So he's full on, has transformed himself uh, to look like this dead king uh, and then he breaks into the acting and starts doing the voice and it says my poor wife do you know your saix or has my face altered in death look at me you will recognize me and find for a husband a husband's ghost your prayers have brought me no help alcyone i am dead do not hold out false hopes of my return and by the way leave juno alone yeah just, <laughs> just enough just of the juno stop. stuff yeah that's, she, 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 if you done. learn one thing from this message no more juno yeah uh so uh you know it says don't doubt it this is not a vague report i myself am drowned as you see before me tell my fate get up and start mourning so uh you know again he kind of breaks the third wall and say like you know the fourth wall says this is what's happening <laughs> believe me Yep. Um, and then we're told that Morpheus has the voice and the hand gestures down and Alcyone is totally convinced that she's been visited by uh, her husband uh, the next day she goes to the sea to mourn and sees a body floating in the sea uh, she jumps down the sea to, to, to get the body and of course it turns out it is Saix mm -hmm. uh, but as she is swimming out to him she turns into a Halcyone bird and Saix does as well when she kisses him oh. and they fly off together so 
happy-ish. So, as a bird, she kisses a corpse, and that gives turns him into a dual a, bird, a live bird. Okay, yeah. so, hey, whatever gets you there. He, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, he and he was concerned about his his brother being a hawk, and now he's a halcyon. So, but a halcyon who's regained love. Yes, that is true. So, and so that is, uh, believe it or not, that is the one story about Morpheus <laughs> in the ancient world. You know, so how do we get from that one passage on Morpheus to him widely being considered the god of dreams? Uh, basically, you know, while the rest of the pantheon took a bit of a breather during the Middle Ages, uh, Ovid and Morpheus, you know, kept a hold uh, on poets and artists' imaginations. Uh, so in the Middle Ages, it became increasingly common uh, for Morpheus to be termed the god of dreams or occasionally the demon of of dreams depending on how christian uh the writer was sure um in epic poems and monks tales uh in a 12th century tale uh we get one of morpheus leads a monk astray for painting an unflattering picture of him and uh gets the monk into trouble by giving him deceptive dreams mm -hmm. however um we, we are told that uh, after he gets him in trouble, then he says, you know, I will get you out of trouble now uh, if you stop painting me in such an unflattering light. Okay. The monk agrees, you know, and they cut a deal. So, um, And then we have Morpheus, uh, actually referred to as the god of sleep and the god of dreams by Chaucer in uh, the book of the Duchess in the 14th century, uh, where Chaucer uh, has a character whose wife has died and the character wishes that he had a god such as Juno or Morpheus um, so that he could see the image of his dead wife again. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we get another version of Morpheus in the Red Cross Knight in, uh, in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Mm -hmm. And he tempts and deludes the Red Cross Knight with some sexy dreams, oh, of yeah. course. You know, the Red Cross Knight uh, resists at first, but then he uses one that deceives him that his uh, traveling companion has uh, been lewd and uh, improper, and, mm. and that causes him to leave his traveling companion as an uptight uh, knight is one to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so back back in the uh, ancient world, there were some elements of worship that I'll just talk about a little bit here, um, focused on the Oniri. And uh, all of those were focused on prophecy and dream divination, which is called Oniromancy. Mm -hmm. um, the Oniri were depicted in the temples of Asclepius. Uh, one of the treatments that Asclepius had involved uh, dream divination. And our old friend uh, Pausinius, uh, the Greek travel writer, uh, gives a description of uh, Oniro's statue uh, in a temple of Asclepius as part of uh, dream incubation treatment, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. Uh, and then in, in the Orphic tradition, we have a couple of surviving hymns to the Oniri, uh, and both those hymns involve uh, asking the Oniri to give the dreamer uh, true dreams uh, to divine the future uh, to the worshiper. So there we have Morpheus from you know nameless dream daemon to first in his class and eventually the god of dreams. Not bad at all. And yeah. quite a powerful weapon 
and influencer those dreams can be over the years. So yeah, he's got a bit of a bit of an arc. If only, uh, you know, we, 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 in trying to save our, our troubled times, we do often look to, to skills in battle. We look to skills in more magical arts. I would, I would suggest the ability to harness dreams in this manner could be, could be quite useful. Yeah, could be good. Could be good. Outstanding. Well, with that, let's take our little breather and let's come back in part two right after this. All right. And we're back with part two. After we've looked at Morpheus, the god of dreams, we take it to another part of the darker side of things. Hades. Very dark. Very dark. The god of the dead, as you said, Andrew, earlier, the king of the underworld. Uh, So much so that Hades is both the man or the god and the place. So he's synonymous with the underworld itself. They share the same name, which I didn't know until actually quite a bit into my childhood. My father was very fond of using the term uh, on a summer day. You know, it's hotter than Hades. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just assumed it was because that particular god was exceedingly handsome. But uh, apparently, <laughs> no, it is It is a thermal uh, matter. Uh, in fact, Hades is not typically handsome. He's got a, a bit of an odd look to him, a bit of an unusual uh, appearance as we see him. Uh, he is seen holding what's called a bident, which is like a, a trident that we would know from his brother Poseidon, who we right. would see. Uh, but just with two forks. With one less dent. Yeah, one less dent. That's right. Just the two forks, not the three, in case you need something a little lighter, a little more, I don't know, aerodynamic for your, your forking. <laughs> so he's got a bident. Um, he is also often seen wearing a, a helmet or a helm or a cap, which is known as the cap of Hades. So it looks a little odd um, that, a, that a god of that stature would be wearing a cap. But in fact, it has a special power. It has the wearer of the cap. It gives the power to become invisible which can be very useful, which we'll, we'll soon learn. Yeah, nice. Um, it did kind of baffle me a little bit that I came upon a number of images of Hades wearing this cap, so I'm not sure how they took those, those images. <laughs> how they took those pictures? Yeah. That's a philosophical <laughs> argument we don't, probably don't have time for here. Uh, so Hades also scores points. He's got a very cool pet. He was mentioned briefly in an earlier episode, but Cerebrus, of course, the three-headed dog right. who guards the underworld. He's sort of a guard dog in reverse, He's not preventing people from coming in. He's preventing people from leaving. Apparently, nobody wants to break in <laughs> to the, the underworld. So, uh, Occasionally, they do. Well, there are exceptions, which we'll get yeah. to. But uh, for the most part, it is uh, once you come in, you do not want to go out. Kind of an East Berlin uh, situation. Exactly right. With the, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are legends that say that Cerberus had as many as 100 heads. Um, but most agree, just the three heads, which, I mean, for a dog, to me, that's impressive enough. Yeah. Um, also had some other kind of impressive characteristics. Legend had it. He had the Cerberus had snakes for tails. He could shoot fire out of his eyes. And he has very acute hearing, which well, to me oh, it seems oh, pretty, yeah. pretty expected for a dog. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. every time you read about it, it's like, yep, you got the snake tails, you got the fire out of the eyes, and but also very good hearing, it turns out. So and, and could he could he have smell things pretty well? That's, uh, that's not clear, but but you know, <laughs> we don't know all the answers from the texts of old. But, right, yeah. but acute hearing. So Hades himself, you know, similar to many of the of the figures that we talk about, have lots of names over the years. Similar to how you described Morpheus, there were names of people who ultimately they would kind of attribute past tales. You know, when we were talking about Aita or Dispotter or Orcus, we were probably just talking about Hades. So they kind of merged right. them together over the years and gave him that identity. The Greeks, though, they wanted to call him Pluton instead of Hades, which is the Greek word for wealthy. Now, he didn't have a ton of money. His, he was not an enviable man of holdings, was, was Hades. 
but they called him that because they they feared offending Hades by mispronouncing his name. Okay. And this is going to start a, a trend that we'll see. And everybody is so afraid of offending the god of the underworld that they actually yeah. gave him a new name that was easier to pronounce. <laughs> so like if they were calling out his pizza order or whatever it was, they didn't want to get it wrong. So like yeah, we're just going to get writing like, it on his cup. That's right. <laughs> we're going to just Starbucks. call you Pluton. We'll all get that one right. Uh, which is the Greek word for wealthy. So they're also kind of, you know, being a little brown nosy and calling him wealthy. Was not just, yeah. yeah, buttered him up. Exactly. So not only are we afraid of him, but we're just, we want to get on his good side, given his, his job, but still pretty impressive. So because of that, because the rich the precious metals come from below in his territory, he does maintain a sort of dual deity status right. as God of riches as well. Sort of a secondary God status for Hades beyond the underworld, even right. though he's really not terribly wealthy. Uh, others who were really afraid to offend him would just refer to him as the Zeus of the underworld, which is, if you're asking me, is almost a double insult because if Zeus is, of course, <laughs> his younger brother. Right. And if you're Hades, you're like, you know what? I'm I'm the king of the underworld. I got an invisibility hat. I got a super cool dog. And all anybody wants to talk about is my stupid Randy brother. little brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But eventually, they, you know, the, the Romans kind of came on Pluton. They, they took it to Pluto. Right. which remains the sort of on the Roman side, the heart of his brand. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But for our purposes here, we're going to, we'll, we'll go with the Greek style. We'll, we'll go with Hades. So Hades origin story is bonkers. And I, and there's, this is going <laughs> to take up most of the time because it is unlike any story that I have heard or told. And I'm glad right. that you started to talk about the family tree because this does go all the way back. You know, so we're going back to a couple of generations before the gods we know, the early, the very beginning, the earliest deities, Back to the primordial gods and the, yep. known as the titans so of course you know it's a good reminder the ancient greeks didn't believe that the gods created the universe the universe as you kind of alluded to earlier created the gods so you had heaven and earth came first as you mentioned and the first parents you know so you've got in this tradition you've got uranus uranus as heaven and gaia as earth and they are the sort of first two entities uranus and gaia the titans were their children and then the titans gave birth ultimately to all the gods that we know the olympians right. the the marquee names that we're going to feature throughout the season. So you've got Uranus and Gaia. They're kind of the first two out there. And despite being essentially the only couple on earth, they, they don't particularly get along well. Uh, <laughs> they, they have a number of children, um, but they're not terribly fond of each other's favorite children. So particularly Uranus has a bit of a, of a bone to pick with, with Gaia. She's got some children of theirs that are more on the monstrous side. You know, there's a kid with, the hundred hands. There's the, the Cyclopes brothers with the one eye. There's Python, the dragon monster we talked about in our Apollo right. episode. You know, but it's you really much to com- you don't have much to compare them with. So well, that's true. Hundred so hands. Yeah, these are but these sure, are also you know they're prototypes. They're still getting the whole being thing worked out. Right, right. Uh, but you know, Uranus still doesn't like the monstrosity of these children, so he sends them to Tartarus. Now, Tartarus is kind of the 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 original underworld before Hades kind of shows up to rebrand it. Yeah. Um, so they're cast down into Tartarus. And that's, you know, for, for like having a, one other being in, in on Earth to deal with, it's kind of a, at the adult level, kind of a rough move. Right. This is like the bad, the bad part of Hades. It's the bad yeah, part. At of this them. point, it's the only, the only part well, and it's, and it's sure. only bad. Yeah. So Uranus does this guy is understandably offended by it. They're monstrous, but you know, they're, they're still her children. So she does what any aggrieved mother would do against her husband she creates a giant stone sickle, gathers up her other children, because there are non-monstrous ones who are still around, and persuades them to use that sickle to castrate their father, Uranus. 
So she kind of puts the word out to all the kids. Most of them say no, they're not into it, (laughs) but there's one who does. And that is the one willing to do the deed Cronus, who is the Titan, who is, you know, taking the desire to be a good son to whole new levels says, Mom, I got it. I'll take care of it. So Cronus steps forward, grabs the sickle, lays in wait, ambushes his father, Uranus, uses the sickle to castrate him and casts his genitals into the sea. So I know what you're thinking. I mean, for, for Uranus, a bad day, not, not a banner yeah, day for yeah. him. Believe it or not, though, there were two high points of this, of this occasion. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> First, the, you know, as I mentioned, Uranus's discarded genitals landed in the sea. They produced this white foam. And I think you may have alluded to this briefly earlier uh, in the season. And from that foam emerged Aphrodite, the goddess of love on her own. So the discarded genitals of Uranus sort of gave birth through this foam on, on its own to give us the goddess of love. Um, you know, you mentioned family trees a little earlier. Right. It's a fascinating shape of things in a, in a mythological family tree. Uh, my favorite part, I think you look at that, the line you were describing before, where you've got these sort of the names of all these proud mothers and fathers of where all these gods came from. And then just off to the left, up in the upper left, just Uranus's genitals. Just gave us after that. <laughs> There's always a sort of, but also this yes, exception. Yeah. The second bright spot was that you know, Cronus, who had wielded the sickle against his father, took took over. You know, essentially his father right. was cast away, to, took over the operation with Rhea, who was his wife and his sister. Again, not many options back then. Right. And the two of them ruled over what was ultimately called like the golden age. It was a great, happy time on earth. After that, there were no laws. There were no rules. Everybody did the right thing. There was no immorality. I mean, I'm, I'm not advocating for castration as any kind of political <laughs> technique or really to accomplish anything. Um, but there was a bright spot. And the golden age sounds pretty great to me. So yeah. that was, uh, yeah, that was a good it, unintended consequence that worked out well. Uh, not great for Uranus, however, who was understandably cast out, not feel, you know, fairly angry at his son, Cronus. And so he gets back at his son and he says, Cronus, because you overthrew me, I predict now the same thing will happen to you. So all I'm saying is watch your back yeah. or watch everything, if you like, because what happened to me could happen to you. Right. Uh, so because of this warning, you know, Cronus is going to take extreme measures to maintain his power. So he and Rhea begin to populate the earth, the two of them, and they give birth to this, this who's who of big names. You know, you've got Hades, who's the oldest, my subject in this episode, but you can look at his siblings. You've got Demeter, who you talked about, who was going to become goddess of the harvest. You've got Hestia, who's going to be goddess of the hearth. You've got Hera, who will be present in virtually every episode, just being jealous, <laughs> um, but also Poseidon, god of the sea. So you've got like a lineup of really heavy hitters in this family. That, uh, that Hera is, or I'm sorry, that Rhea is, is bearing uh, to Cronus. But because Cronus is so paranoid that one of his children will overthrow him, as his father predicted, he does what every cursed conscious father would do. He devours every child as soon as it's born, just eats them right up. So this is the long-awaited callback from the beginning of the episode about keeping your small children close to your belly. <laughs> Cronus had them in his belly because he wanted to avoid that curse. So he did no such thing. I would think Rhea would want to stop having children after the first time that happened, but apparently just yeah, given another try happens right. with the first several children. She keeps on rolling. So number six is on the way. Rhea is finally getting a little, little upset about this goes to the mother goddess Gaia and says, I need help. we got to change things up. Cronus is off, you know, digesting the children somewhere. She sneaks away, asks for help. So with Gaia's help, Rhea gives birth to their sixth child in secret on the island of Crete. And that child is no, no, none other than our returning 
guest star, Zeus himself, right, as the final in that line. So instead of doing what you would normally do in presenting Zeus to Cronus, um, for some reason, she does a different thing. She takes a stone, wraps it in swaddling clothes to look like a baby, and gives Cronus that instead. Now, Cronus, of course, has his routines really down, so he just grabs a stone, swallows it, yeah, goes on his point, way. Clear. <laughs> just, doesn't think about it. Just muscle memory. Yeah, this is, this is yeah. what I do. I'm Cronus. Uh, he thinks he's in the clear. But of course, Zeus, unlike all of his older siblings, he survives becoming his father's dinner. And now there's, there's varying degrees or varying stories about how Zeus actually ends up being raised. Some are rather colorful. So one, some say that he grew up, Zeus did, raised by a goat while a company of male dancers would shout and clap so loudly that the baby's cries could not be heard. So kind of a classic upbringing story, you know, the, old, <laughs> yeah. the old goat and the male dancers. Um, another story, another version of that, he's raised by a nymph who hides Zeus as a baby by dangling him from a rope tied to a tree. Now, this is very clever because remember, Cronus is still the ruler of the earth and the sea and the sky. So by dangling the baby from the tree, he's sort of between jurisdictions. He's kind of <laughs> in a gray area. Yeah. Similar to the floating island we encounter in episode three. So once again, as mentioned earlier in this episode, these folks are great at just making up rules and then finding a cool way to break. Find the loophole, yeah. Find the loophole. Um, the, th the most realistic version of how Zeus probably really grew up uh, is that his grandmother, Gaia, who is Mother Earth, naturally took, her, took him on and raised him herself, which makes sense because, of course, most of her children are still monsters stuck in hell. So she's got the time. <laughs> And she's available. So she raises Zeus, likely. He grows up. And here's where Gaia's really playing the long game. So after he grows up, she gives Zeus an emetic, which is essentially a liquid to induce vomiting, a, you know, a, a purgative, kind of a, an ancient castor oil type property. <laughs> Zeus finds a way to slip this to Cronus. And wouldn't you know it, the vomiting begins. And this is where so, so Cronus just one by one purges all of these children. That he had right, been. So, uh, yeah, this episode maybe should have it a different warning. <laughs> <laughs> Listener discretion advised. Yeah. Now the part I love about it just there's an orderliness, orderliness to it where everything comes out in reverse order. So the first thing that's first in is last out, last out is for you know last in, first out. So first you know you get you get the rock and then you get, you get all the babies <laughs> and you get uh, Hades at the end. And it's unclear how how old they are if they've matured in in the gastrointestinal system. They don't get to those kinds of details, but. Hades is the last one out. He's the oldest. And it does remind me, I mean, we've heard people, I don't know if you've ever had to share a room with a sibling. I never did, but my, you've heard people complain about it. Right. People complain about even having bunk beds. But imagine like spending the formative years of your life sharing the gastrointestinal tract <laughs> of your father with all of your siblings and a baby-sized rock in there too. Like that's, <laughs> that's a full house. So Zeus becomes the real hero. He's, you know, particularly as the youngest, but he still saved everybody. And not only does he free the siblings from the digestive tract of Cronus as a thank you to his grandma for raising him, he goes back and tracks down the monster children down in Tartarus who have thank you gifts for him for setting them free. And it's like serious thank you gifts. So he get, they, the, the monsters give Zeus his thunderbolts. Oh, nice. Poseidon, his, his aforementioned trident. And yeah, for Hades, they give him his famous cap of invisibility. So pretty generous as far as uh, their thank you for breaking him out. Right. Um, sadly, it is also probably the first time in recorded history that the girls in the family all get stiffed on presents. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's yeah, where uh, Hera's seed of jealousy just begins. Right there. Yeah. So everyone's armed and ready. They've all got their, their gadgets. And Zeus knows at this point the Titans have to go. I mean, this is the time to really take over in earnest. 
Um, so he leads his siblings in a full-on war against the Titans, which is, becomes known as the Titano Titanomachy, um, which, as I see it, arguably the original version of God versus God, back when gods right. actually did fight each other on battlefields with weapons, not just uh, you know having their relative merits debated <laughs> by middle-aged men in podcast <laughs> form. <laughs> this is the stakes for a Civil Civilization. That's right. This, yeah. this is a civilized version. That's right. So the Titanomachy lasts 10 years. Zeus and the gang, as, as we probably know, emerge victorious, banish most of the Titans down to Tartarus for, for the duration, and they establish the rule in, in Olympus that we know today. Now, as usual, there are a few important footnotes to this story. So what happens to Cronus after all that baby eating? Well, there's varying accounts of that. So most agree that he probably winds up in Tartarus as kind of an eternal prisoner of war after the Titans are defeated. There is one retelling um, from the Byzantine mythographer Tsitsis, who claims that Zeus, in fact, to get revenge on Cronus, repeats history, and that's right, castrates his own father, Cronus, to get back at him oh. as a punishment for all of that child eating. So maintaining the, the family tradition. There's not much said about this, though. Castration at this point had become so controversial that it had been repressed by most of the mythmakers until the Byzantine era. So we'll never know, but there's a period right. up until about the 11th century where... Uh, that story is unspoken and probably for good reason. Uh, the second footnote. So the rock and baby clothes that Rhea used as the prop version of Zeus, once Kronos regurgitated that, it was actually put on display at Mount Olympus as a sign for mortal men of the, the importance of that moment. So another nice callback to the flayed satyr of episode three, beginning the practice of taking a thing, <laughs> putting it out there for everyone to see and remember this moment. So Zeus placed it there to kind of mark you know, Olympus is the center of the world, which of course it remained being for many, many years until years later when Boston replaced it as the hub of the universe. <laughs> I recall. Uh, yeah. um, last footnote in a modern day context. So 2017, not that, not that long ago, uh, astronomers actually discovered a star that was observed that was swallowing the planets around it. So they changed the name of that planet from the banal HD 240430 to Cronus. So even though Cronus got overthrown, lost his power, maybe lost even more than that, depending yeah. on who you hear. <laughs> his child-swallowing legacy lives on. So he's got that going for him. So Zeus and his brothers are setting up shop. They're beginning Olympus. They're starting up the, the Zeus administration. And they've got to divide their territory. They're the victors, so they got to claim the spoils. Um, so rather than you know engage in some kind of debate or have a logical argument, they essentially just cast lots. You know, They roll the dice. They do a coin flip. Um, so everyone's going to share Olympus. The earth is everybody's property, but they still have to give away the various other parts of reality. So in the lot casting, Zeus gets the sky, Poseidon gets the sea. And of course, Hades is stuck with the yeah. underworld. So, I mean, it's you kind of give it to straw. Zeus. Yeah, it's definitely the short straw. You give it to Zeus because he did the hard work. He freed everybody. He deserves a strong pick. But Hades, I mean, just kind of reminds me of the equivalent of like Buffalo after losing that coin, coin toss at Kansas City. <laughs> you never even touching the ball. It's just like, oh. I guess I'm stuck with the underworld. So like it or not, that becomes his kingdom. It's that unseen realm under the earth where the souls of the dead will live out their days. So let's talk about a little bit about that territory. You, you mentioned a bit of it, you know, as, as we said, it, it shares the name of Hades himself. He did rebrand it from Tartarus after he took over. So as a mighty Olympian, he was able to you know, essentially stamp his name on all the signs, put his name in big letters everywhere. It's, it's, this is Hades place now. Right. Um, he can get away with that. I would argue if you're not a god and you start putting your own name in big letters in every place that you buy, <laughs> um, Hades might be a good destination for you someday, but that's, that's a different story and no names on that. Um, the location is always 
underneath, always below, but the details will vary. So the Iliad had it beneath the secret places of the earth. It's a pretty vague. Um, according to Odyssey, it was located over the edge of the world across the ocean, okay. which again, geography for an ancient text, that makes sense. For the documented one in six Americans who are still not entirely certain, certain that the world is round, uh, <laughs> you might want to keep those directions in mind. You may need them someday um, for your future navigation. Um, but once you're in the underworld, you know, not a place, not a nice place. It's filled with the the, hope, the souls of the dead. Homer describes it as kind of vague, shadowy, nothing is real. You know, it's full of ghosts. Right. They call them guests, like it's some kind of dark Disney world. <laughs> um, but their existence, is, according to Homer, is this never-ending, just miserable dream. Virgil later on gives some of the detail that you kind of alluded to, the river of woe to cross and the boatman who ferries the souls of the dead to the gate. So, you know, but he receives the bodies only if they're properly buried with passage money on their lips, which strikes me as also a little rude. Like you're already yeah, going to the underworld, but you have to bribe your way in. I, that, 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 that's rough. Um, but Virgil, Virgil also tells us, to your point before, that the underworld of Hades is actually not all bad. So yeah, you've got some who are judged and tormented, but in his version, there is another option. for the, If you had a good life, you can experience some joy. So on the whole, though, it does seem a very abysmal place and not a place you want to be. So, right. And you got some characters. You got Cerebrus, the guard dog with the great hearing. Three different rivers, as you said. Somewhere down there, the palace of Hades himself. And you know the description of it sounds actually a little bit akin to the description you gave earlier of where the dreams come from. Gates, right. in this case, but, but, but a little more boisterous. It's crowded. It's full of people who are trying to get in. But mostly a wasteland, some weird kind of ghostly flowers, and 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 beyond that point, we don't really know much about the details because the poets, like everybody else, were afraid to talk too uh, much yeah. about it. They didn't want to offend any of the underworld folks either. That was the equivalent of, you know, saying Candyman three times or joking about the IRS or whatever. Like just <laughs> better well, left well, unsaid. Well, Fight Club. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so. You also got the Furies down there who, who are there to punish the bad guys. And, and of course, the deities, as you mentioned earlier, of sleep and death. So good reminder that Hades is not death himself. You know, death is his, is its own guy. I think Thanatos was the, the Greek yeah. uh, iteration of that, who does the hard work, who does the killing. Um, so Hades is really more of like a landlord. You know, he's, <laughs> he's kind of watching over the place, which I guess makes Cerebrus kind of like his superintendent. So they, yes. they run the place together. He's not doing the heavy lifting, but... He makes sure everything's going. Yeah, he's going got a lot, a lot of admin. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you need some, you need some extra help there. Uh, so, as far as his personality goes, you know, because folks were so afraid to talk about him, there's also not much we know. We know that he's, he's not described in much detail. He's not pure evil like we might associate with death, but he's also just he's more, more complicated. Like according to, you know, in contrast to his more flashy siblings, your Zeus, your Poseidon, much more passive. Not necessarily negative, but just about maintaining balance in the world, which strikes a lot of people as kind of cold and stern. But but he's fair. He's like, everybody's equally accountable to my laws, whether you like it or not. Right. And in a strange way, Hades is also seen as kind of altruistic. He's much more concerned about others than he is himself, which kind of explains his really depressing sounding house. But <laughs> he's he's there to do a job and he does it well. And that was his style. He stuck to it. He rarely left the underworld. I uh, took his job seriously, but in doing that job, thankfully, he was not alone because for at least a time, he had Persephone. So, of course, Persephone, as you have alluded to in the past, she becomes the consort and the wife of Hades, making her queen of the underworld. And I know what you're thinking if you haven't heard that story. Oh, that's cute. They meet at work. But no, it's not. It's not that kind of story. No, Persephone no. is the beautiful daughter of Zeus and Demeter. So you talked about this story in episode two. 
Uh, we'll recall that Zeus and Demeter are also Hades' brother and sister, respectively. Yes. So it's their daughter that he wants to Marry. capture to be his consort, his wife. And again, like these crazy family trees. I don't know. Like we don't have terminology for what to call somebody <laughs> like that. Like, so you're my double niece and my double niece <laughs> wife. I don't know. Even even in the darkest corners of this country, we don't we don't have words for that. Um, but you know, not to condone the behavior, but there weren't many options and. And uh, there were many options, very many variants of it's complicated back then. So it's one one thing for Hades to say, I would like to take Persephone and bring her down to make her my underworld queen. But Zeus was okay with it. He's yeah. like, yeah, no problem. Gives 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 him the blessing, gives his brother the sign off to marry his, his own daughter. And Persephone, for understandable reasons, is not crazy about the idea. So she refuses him. So as you said, he, you know, to add another layer of dysfunction, Hades abducts her anyway. And she's out manning her own business. She's picking flowers. Hades traps her in the underworld to be his queen. And you eloquently, Andrew, told the story about how Demeter, her mother, uh, cast a spell in protest of having her daughter taken away, put a curse on the land to make sure that, you know, in essence, the, the earth will remain barren until the daughter's returned. The right. other gods get worried. Zeus comes back, persuades Hermes' son to go down to the underworld and persuade Hades to, to give Persephone back. So classic Zeus causing the problem, <laughs> but trying to find a way to fix it. He's trying. And Hades says, you know, finally... He's confronted. He says, fine, Persephone, if you want to go, you can. You know, kind of a no hard feelings moment. He's kind of takes a last moment. He's, but are you sure? I mean, down here, you have the chance to rule over everybody. Whoever doesn't do you right, you can punish them forever. I mean, am I warming anything up here? Yeah. Is it sounding good? <laughs> That's something. So Persephone, though, says to her, you know, double uncle and abductor and husband, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. Uh, I do suspect at this point yes. she would have been tempted to punctuate uh, her goodbye was something like see you in hell, but that wouldn't have worked <laughs> in this context. So as you beautifully recounted, Andrew, ha Hades slips, slips with that pomegranate seed on her way out as a parting gift. She and, and Hermes do make it back to Demeter, but it's discovered Persephone ate the fruit of the dead. And so Demeter and Zeus arrange a compromise where Persephone must return to the underworld, as you said, for a third of the year, which we now know is winter. So she's the original snowbird oh, out of town <laughs> for the winter. And Based on our current weather, she's she's down there now. Uh, and it is fascinating to consider that same story from two points of view, because in telling, and when you told it from the perspective of Demeter, right. it was this kind of emotional story, the longing for a mother after her daughter to return. From the perspective of Hades, though, he's just, you know, the simple guy looking for love with his double knees in hell. <laughs> just every every yeah. story has, has a couple of sides. So it's a side, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a side. They're not all equally valid, but they, they <laughs> no, exist. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's other, there are other stories where Hades is a minor, a minor figure. You've got Orpheus and Eurydice, where of course she dies as a snake bite. Your Orpheus sings a beautiful song. He's able to take her out of the underworld, a rare example of that because he was a good musician. So it's a great, great example of where Hades, yeah. you know, always lived by the law unless you sang him a really good song, in which case, yeah, there yeah, are exceptions. Yeah. Um, there's other kidnappings. There's Hades sentencing. Sisyphus to roll the boulder up the hill that rolls down every time. Classic punishment there. There's even a story where Heracles, in the last of his great labors, tries to steal Hades' super cool guard dog, Cerebrus. So I'm sure we're going to save that one for a future episode. I assume, without spoilers, the dog's hearing ends up saving the day, but I, I can't <laughs> promise that. I haven't done that reading. So uh, I will say, too, as, as another point in, in on the side of Hades, he did have that cap of invisibility. He was kind enough to lend it out from time to time to help others. So okay. he did use it. He gave it to Athena, who used it during the Trojan War to help an enemy of Ares. It helped Hermes defeat a giant. 
and help Perseus get away after he decapitated Medusa. Now I know we'll hear more of these down the road, right. uh, but good on Hades for lending out that weapon. That's a, that's a classy move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so there is a final love story. You know, we, we, we heard the heartbreak of Persephone having to be brought back out of his, uh, out of his court for at least a good part of the year. Um, he loses her, but he is his beautiful first wife, but he still finds love. He takes a mistress, a nymph from one of the underworld rivers, whose name is Minth, M-I-N-T-H-E. Now the story is against Vary, but Minth ends up boasting of being even more beautiful than Persephone. Now you know where this is going. The hubris is already just kicking in. Once his ex-wife hears about this just blatant display of hubris, she goes to, to Minth and tramples her underfoot into the dirt to her death, not only killing her, but turning her into mint, the aromatic oh, okay. herb. Yeah. I was, so, yeah, was going to say something about that, but there you go. Minth becomes mint. So, you know, as a final toast for old Hades, you know, every time he enjoys a mojito, <laughs> mint, minty flavor just always reminds him of the cost little, of hubris. A little, yeah. little bittersweet, yeah. A little bittersweet. So... In conclusion, I mean, Hades, Hades is a scary guy for good reason, but in his way, he's also fair. Uh, Edith Hamilton, I think, describes him best as unpitying, but just terrible, but not evil, which was also oddly part of my last performance review at work. So that was, that was <laughs> nice to see. Um, you know, had a rough upbringing growing up in his, in his dad's belly, drew the short right. straw, as he said, and having to claim the underworld and definitely couldn't catch a break in love. But I don't know. I, he took his work seriously. He devoted himself to it. He loved his dog. And in all that, I believe there's still a certain dignity. So there we have Hades. Did the best he could with what he had. Feared. Unlucky in love. <laughs> did his best. Unlucky and... <laughs> Unlucky and also flawed in some of his techniques and his yes. choices. <laughs> so that's it. That's Hades for you. Um, I need to take a glass of water because all, all, all that castration, all, <laughs> all that abduction, it really does, uh, it dries up the throat. But uh, yeah. Good story. Good job, Bella. Right. Very interesting. Well, then uh, let's take a quick breather and then uh, come right on back for the, the judgment in our final categories in part three. Yes. Back for our conclusion of God versus God, episode four, the judgment, the categories of Morpheus versus Hades. Andrew, kick us off with the first of the five. Yeah, five categories. Uh, and the first one is immortal combat, which again is who would win in a one-on-one fight. So yes. even though that I've discussed all the Oniri, we're just going <laughs> to narrow it down to, <laughs> to Morpheus himself. He can't bring in all 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 uh, millions of the brothers. I well, I don't know. I think in the past, we've sort of allowed the entourage to be part of the package. So if, yeah, yeah like if you're routinely surrounded by others and they're going to help, if they're all just going to give him different varieties of dreams before the fight, <laughs> that might not be as daunting, yes. but we, we could also be playing the long game. And maybe this battle takes part over months where every time Hades takes off his, uh, his cap and, and has a slumber. They're planting misinformation into his brain about the fight. So. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, I assume th- this is going to be a little more of a uh, discreet event. Um, so I'll give you the strengths of, of Morpheus, uh, such as that. So, you know, he can fly. He's yeah. Very, actually fly very fast. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, he goes from the end of the Earth to Traxxas in a couple minutes. So that's good. Yeah, that's, that's beyond the, the Concord. That's impressive. Um, he can shape shift. 
Okay. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what, what that's going to gain him. Maybe, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe make himself look like Zeus. I don't know. Mm. Uh, a little, little fear in there. Uh, he's silent, uh, can be sneaky. Um, you know, weaknesses, uh, no evidence of any fighting tradition yeah. uh, whatsoever. Whatever. Um, no weapons training. Right. I do think um, Isellus or Phantosis, if, if they can participate, might be a little bit more more helpful. Isellus can turn into any sort of animal. So, yeah. Uh, like in the real uh, world or just in dreams though yeah that's a good question it's yeah. it's it's you know it seems like uh you know the way it's pictured is they're whispering in their ear but they sort of turn into the thing while they're whispering into to the ear so it, i do believe that they can actually shape change okay uh that, that was my my reading of it is All that right. uh he sheds his wings and he does the whole thing and then he starts talking to her so he like he gets into character so method acting it's like method yeah brando yeah okay they're going right. they're going full method on that's this, impressive so. yeah uh so you know uh th- those two might be a little bit helpful uh uh fantosis is inanimate objects but you know yeah a I stone mean, a rock yeah, I say, <laughs> or a clock or like you know a shoe i mean you you need to choose wisely yeah but if you know if he uh maybe he's flying turns into a rock there you go. Uh, projectile of some sort. There you a little go. creative uh, thinking. I like it. But uh, yeah, so that, that's that's kind of what they've got. Um, so you got some tools in the toolkit. I think, you know, you don't hear a lot about battle with Hades either. I mean, I think he he typically worked alone. He did have his stint in in the war against the Titans, which was successful, right. but really didn't go back as a lot of these guys did to, to fight in other battles. But rule with an iron fist, you know, was was very was a tough boss. And and in his realm was uh, was known as being very stern. He doesn't get challenged, really. Uh, that's true. That's that is that's yeah. a fair point. He's always the boss. Um, you know, he had a scary entourage. So you got the Furies in there who are just whose only job it is to torment the souls of the dead. And of course, Cerebrus, the three headed fire breathing wonder, he's around. Yeah. Um, I think what gives Hades a good, a nice plus one is the helmet of invisibility. Right. Um, clearly that, you know, demonstrably in battle has helped others. So I think even if he were to use it himself, that could be a huge advantage. Oh, yeah. And, and he, he has a weapon. That, that, that helps. <laughs> That's true. He, has, he has a weapon, which is uh, not, he's not relying on turning his brother into no. a weapon. <laughs> so. or, or just invading his dreams. He does have, yeah. you know, at least a, a way to, to get past this. So, yeah, I would picture he puts the cap on, he brandishes the Bident. You know, that alone can probably do the trick. Yeah. If anything, if he's got a liability, you know, apart from the, the, the horses with the bad eyes, it's, uh, he actually has such a sense of fairness. It could be a strike against him. He would want everything okay. to be by the book. And we think uh, often in, in, in fighting, it's those who are willing to bend the rules who do the best. Right. So I think given, given the circumstances, even with all the creativity you could bring to the table with uh, Morpheus and his, his posse, I think I got to give Hades the vote on this one. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think there's, there's part of me that says, well, maybe he could sneak or cheat his way into it because he does have that deceptive quality but i think that is uh you know odds are uh you know nine out of ten times uh th- this is this is going to going to hades so yeah that's, and he that's i mean and not to icing on the cake of course hades can bring his family into it and he's got a, his family is stacked with power and talent so if right. he needed to, to really go for backup yeah, if, if it's family well yeah depending on how far the families go but yeah, I think I think just in in, in the immediate, uh, you know, uh, even if if uh, Morpheus gets gets his his two closest brothers on his side, I don't I don't see that that's yeah. 
that's going to be enough. Um, All right. So yeah, like, I think Hades gets the nod. Yep, definitely. So uh, that, that puts us at um, one to nothing. And it moves us on to our curriculum deity round. Yes. So do you want to start us off on? Uh, yeah. Hades? So this, of course, the two-parter. Who would you rather be and who would you rather follow? Uh, on, the, on the B question, you know, there is a certain part of me that really does envy uh, the fact that Hades were so people were so afraid to, to pronounce his last name wrong. Maybe it's because I myself have a surname that is Irish and perfectly phonetic and yet everybody gets it wrong. So maybe, maybe that's just my own thing with him. I wish I had that right. problem. Um, he does have that sense of just crippling fear among everybody. Um, so there's, you know, read that as you will, but there, there, there's a, a plus side to it. Um, but everything else after that is pretty, is pretty downhill. I mean, he's somber. He seems kind of miserable. Yeah, that we as we covered, very unlucky. And even like though he e- has, I'm oh, sorry. Like if Eeyore was a god, yeah, I kind of <laughs> like that. Just mopey, yeah, yeah. just just not the mm-hmm. not the life of the party. Terrible. And even though he has this estate in the underworld, it's you know by all accounts it's a pretty rotten neighborhood. So it's you know he's got the nicest house in <laughs> house in Gary, Indiana, or something. So it's not right. great. Um, you know, and then finally, when he got he was re lucky in love, his his mistress was turned into mint. So nobody wants to be that guy. So while it'd be great to have that cool dog, would it be great to have the helmet of invisibility? Um, it, it's a hard case to want right. to be in. When so, it comes to following him, you know, there are. Do you want to do them one at a time, or kind of? Yeah, no, no, you go, go ahead. Yeah. So I mean, there were there were certainly temples, not at the at the sun level. We see with with some of the other gods we talked about, there were sacrifices, but even they were just kind of scary because. He was so feared. They only they would only sacrifice like their sort of darkest, weirdest animals. Um, and when they and when they did it, they would turn their heads away while making the sacrifice. And like that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us, oh, but that's a bit, yeah. The gods need to be looked at and adored while these sacrifices are being made. And these folks were so afraid, so afraid of Hades that they couldn't even face him when they were so, doing it. Because so, fear. what are these weird animals? That's what. They're just, they're, they're described as the blackest of animals. So I, I think the double read on that is that they were just animals colored black, uh-huh. but also kind of the, the feistiest, the, the most, the meanest like nasty spiders. And yeah. Or, or just like the blackest cow in the bunch, but the one who's really looks at you funny and <laughs> snorts a lot. Gotcha. So yeah. All right. yeah, that's, that's what they want. That's what they thought Hades would want. And that's what they gave. So as a follower, again, not terribly appealing because you're so crippled with yeah. fear. Um, these temples are, are really, you know, nothing to sneeze. No, no, they're not. They're not great. They're not fun to go to. So I, I would give him give Hades pretty low ranks on both being right. and following. Yeah, which yeah, which is you know some of the other ones. You know, when we talked about Demeter, uh, you know, the sacrifice is a big part of it because yeah, they sacrifice the pig, but that, that turns into a barbecue. That's true. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so, that's, so it's, it's not bad. No, um, no so. Um, all right, on, on Morpheus, you know, the good, you know, he has a bit of an upward trajectory, mm, yeah, which is nice. So it makes it kind of an appealing story. He starts off as, you know, an anonymous uh, Neros and gets the attention of the god, works mm-hmm. works his way, way up. Um, Inspiring. Yeah, he's got a uh, very chill lifestyle, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> to uh, say the least, there, there was part of me that was listening to that quiet palace thinking that sounds pretty good. I can yeah, there, yeah, there's definitely some weekends where I'm like, yeah, I, yeah. I can take a take a weekend there. <laughs> uh, no, that doesn't sound too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so very, very chill lifestyle, plenty of relaxation. Um, you know, it's it's uh, uh, you know, a very chill palace. Um, mm. to coin so, a phrase, yes, 
Yeah. So uh, plenty of relaxation. So that's good. Um, and his work when he does work is, is creative work. Totally. You know? it's, yeah. it's, you know, kind of, kind of an actor, writer, storyteller, you know, mm-hmm. doing little, little one man acts every night, you know, absolutely. So, it keeps, uh, you it know, keeps you interesting. You, you keep developing your skill. There's a new challenge all the time. Yeah. You know, so that's not kind of, kind of, kind of appealing. It seems like it'd be kind of rewarding Yeah, work. He gets, you know, and he gets the big jobs. He's, uh, um, you know, not stuck going to the, uh, shepherd out in the field. And goes, <laughs> oh my God, what's this going to be? Um, so, you know, uh, on the neutral side, which can kind of go either way, a little bit of a, a, a latchkey kid, you know, mm. his father, his father is literally sleep and his mother or, or stepmother is, um, I think one of the charities who is relaxation. Mm. So, you know, uh, not going to get a ton of hand- quality time with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely hands off. Um, <laughs> His he's works he does work, night work his mm. third shift that's so true. <laughs> gotta gotta get used to that that's a sacrifice uh, yep you know, some people that appeals to but mm-hmm. uh, so I put that in the neutral uh, bad you know he he's a uh, it's a little bit of an isolate you know the the sleep palace has has some downsides I I would think it'd get a little uh, a little tiring um, lives with his brothers and his fathers uh, forever so. Um, and you know he takes takes a lot of orders. You know, mm. gets called up by Zeus by the gods and and uh, says, "Okay, go go deliver this this message or, or whatever." Um, yeah. You know, yeah. so in, in that sense, not always a sense of uh, independence in, right. in, in, in his not work, much so. agency for him. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, at least at least in those. Um, and then on the worshippers' side, you know, they don't really have. There's no temples that I was able to find uh, or uh, that are solely to uh, any of the, the Oniri, but uh, there was some worship, um, as I said, typically associated with divination through uh, dreams uh, and Asclepius. So they had this uh, sort of dream uh, treatment that Asclepius had, and, and in those temples, there would be statues to the Oniri. And people would go and they would have a little bit of a cleanse. There was mm, some sort mm-hmm. of special diet you were supposed to take beforehand, uh, you know, cleanse for the weekend. And then you go and sleep in the temple. And, you know, there was some incense and, and things designed to provoke dreams for you that would uh, then be interpreted and, and hopefully uh, help help to cure you. Yeah. And then uh, the, uh, as I said, the, the Orphic tradition, which is kind of a cult uh, around Orpheus. Uh, we have some of their hymns that, that survive. Sure. And then one um, to the Oniri, uh, talking about the blessed power of the Oniri, divine messengers of future fates, and, you know, and asks them to give uh, prophetic dreams. And uh, you know, says we've been good people. So give us some dreams and tell us uh, what, what the future holds. Um, you know, so that that's kind of, it. So it's not a it's not a overwhelming uh, uh, tradition, but you know. Hey, I mean, if you have to go side by side versus taking your blackest of animals, turning your head away, and just throwing them down the the chute versus what sounds like a spa weekend. Yeah, I mean, it really. Yeah, a little, little cleanse, you know. Yeah, that's... no, I'm all about that. And I, th- I think Asclepius, and I, I'm, memory serves, I think he was the son of Apollo. Yes. Um, right. And I think Apollo, of course, began the process of medicine in kind of its earlier form, but Asclepius was the one who really took it to yeah, yeah. full so physician. I, yeah. Yeah, hopefully we will uh, meet him soon. 
Um, yeah. Well, and clearly he was even back then going in more of a holistic medicine route. He wasn't, yeah. uh, he wasn't just pumping out prescriptions. He was thinking about the whole body. So good on him. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was, an, and, and at that time, you know, having a bit of a, bit of a cleanse, maybe fasting, maybe cleaning up the, uh, the diet for a weekend and, and then going to sleep at the spa is probably not the worst uh, medical treatment you could have gotten in the ancient world. <laughs> oh, no, sounds rather pleasant. By, 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 by any means. Uh, you no. know, nobody was cutting you open and leading <laughs> you with leeches or anything. So, you know, so on this one, I, I'm, I'm going to give this to Morpheus. I am too. Mind. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And, and it's, I think he gets, he gets both sides of the category for sure. Yeah. 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 They kind of forever sleepy teenager. <laughs> we, we've all uh, still got a little bit of that inside of us that we can, yeah. that we can appeal to us. I, you know, the older I get, the, the, the lazier I get. So I, I get that. Yeah. The, the fond, and the fond memories of those times. So, all right. So now we are evened up Okay, at one and one. All right. Um, and our next round is good God. So this is going to be an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll go first um, with, uh, with Morpheus and we've got, you know, again, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. um, you know, he definitely uh, will be, can be deceptive. You know, mm-hmm. we're assuming that that story in the Iliad um, with Agamemnon, just, you know, happily lying right to his face and, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, leading them into a disastrous little battle plan. Um, yeah. Although uh, Agamemnon did deserve to get taken down a notch. I think yeah, that seems Ag- like a bit more of a notch, but you know, yeah, a- people Agamemnon have Agamemnon. Is, is yeah, a lot of people have a beef with Agamemnon. <laughs> not not a good guy. So <laughs> if if you're gonna deceive anybody, I guess you know you're getting half marks off for deceiving him. Right. Um, you know, he could also uh be helpful. Um, you know, in the Alcyon uh Saix uh story, uh that was helpful. And, and you know, even though had a little bit of a bad edit for Juno on that one. There is there is a sense in which that was giving the relief of, of knowing what happened uh, to her husband actually was a relief hmm. uh, for Alcyon and was a, a service uh, to her. So uh, even though the translation I read uh, certainly made it seem more like this was something that uh, Juno was was doing to get rid of her, but, just to get off the calendar. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But she also didn't send a, a snakes or anything. Yeah, after she, she could have been way worse. Yeah, she she's certainly done worse. So, you know, so that that was a, a helpful. Um, you know, they're messengers and they're following orders, so it's it's a little bit of a neither great nor nor bad because it, it depends on on where they're getting the orders. Um, you know, and. Though again, back to the Asclepius thing with the dream incubation, you know, aiding some healing, mm-hmm. uh, at least theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, you know, when we go into that Christian era, uh, you know, the writers are more more negative about uh, Morpheus and more negative about any dreams that are coming from any source that wasn't uh, uh, the Christian uh, God. Mm-hmm. Uh, other, other than um, the the one uh, story we get from Chaucer where he kind of says, yeah, it, it would be nice to, <laughs> to get this message and, and be able to, to see my wife uh, in that way again. So, but, but other than that, uh, there's definitely more of a negative vibe on that, but yeah, you know, yeah. so not, not strong vibes either way. I think, you know, we look at the service that is providing dreams and imagination. And, and in addition to like, whether it was prophecy or, or 
messages from the god there there also was a sense of uh dreams as being part of imagination mm-hmm. and, and and fantasy and, and that being yep. a, a, a a useful thing so i agree you know, Hades has has the two sides as well as as these characters often do. You know, he 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 has a dirty job, um, but you know the other end of that is someone has to do it, and he right. he does it very uh, with a great deal of energy and care and seriousness. There's a certain, as I said, there's a dignity to that. He takes takes that duty to heart, um, and to a certain degree, you know, even though he makes it his character to be the judge of right and wrong, he kind of projects that in a much bigger way to humanity by giving this still forming still kind of you know unstable world a sense of right and wrong which it didn't really have before um that's a rather broad brush of painting with it but it it is there is a sense that the the influence of hades in creating that code and in enforcing it did have a huge influence on people's sort of moral structures so there's something to be said for that that's pretty impressive as always, himself, you know, he had, I think, a mostly s- strong moral compass, it seems, except for the whole thing about kidnapping the double niece <laughs> and tricking her on the way out. But, you know, there's always one. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't perfect. But I, I would argue that the the impact of his kind of his the seriousness that he took right and wrong in judging uh, is amplified across all of humanity at that time. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty strong message for him. So I think I do have to give, do have to give Hades the nod on that one. Um, Interesting. even though he came from a, you know, a punishing place, you still, still felt like you were getting a fair shake. Right. You know, and I, I think the, the thing that I'm, uh, debating on this one is of course the, the Persephone, uh, thing, <laughs> which, you know, in, in many ways, you know, my, when I told the story in Demeter, uh, episode, I felt like the, the real bad guy of, of that was more Zeus yeah. than, uh, than Hades now Hades uh not, not to let him off totally but you know Hades goes to the father and yeah. which at the time was part of, of what one was supposed to do and I asked for permission and the father instead of you know says oh, this is gonna be difficult with my wife so not my wife but uh, with the mother uh so he just uh suggests uh the subduction which is uh though Hades does it and then uh, I think the part that really um is actually the worst for or well at least as bad for him is is the tricking with the pomegranate on the way out the door yeah that's the that's That's kind of shooting you in the back on the way out that that that's that's a that's some dirty pool right there yeah although on the other side he does essentially allow persephone to leave he is able to be convinced he's still he's on his turf he has every right to say no you're in my hand you're my land now she stays here but You know, after after all that got her there, he still gives her the pass. But yeah, you're right. He still does the sneaky little move on the way out. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, 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 even though I, I think you make an interesting point about like sort of the work that he did and how that uh, providing a bit more of a moral compass is really interesting, and I hadn't thought of it that way. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Morpheus on this one. So mm. we're, gonna, we're gonna call call that one a split. Okay. So we are one, one, and one. Wow. Very interesting. That's not happened for iconography. Yes. So this one's a tricky one too. So the better legacy, right? So the afterlife itself has huge, of course, huge influence on culture. It has many forms, many other characters. You know, we, we, our current version of course, even motivates for a lot of people, how they live their lives, just their perception of being, you know, 
filtering their life through the fear of being punishment in the afterlife. Um, Hades himself doesn't really loom large apart from what he represents as a place. Uh, you did mention something called Hades romances, um, which I was, you know, a little bit shook up to hear. You just kind of sent me an email said, Hey, do you know what this is? And I was a little horrified when you mentioned it. Cause I just, I figured, you know what? So it's a thing now that people are kidnapping their double niece from, you know, who, <laughs> And, and, and keeping them in your kingdom. And again, even in all 50 states, you just you don't see that. But no, apparently Hades is also a very popular video game. Um, it deals with, I think, in this, the story, the story of Hades' son, who's trying to escape the underworld. Very popular. It was like the game of the year in 2020. And okay. very much, I, I will admit, my knowledge of video games is very light, especially the, like, the, the concept of romance within video games. is very hard to grasp. I mean, I, I don't... I don't know if like Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man were a thing, for instance. I don't know if, I mean, did Mario and like the girl from Donkey Kong get together? Was there, was the gorilla involved somehow in some sort of <laughs> understanding of Luigi? I don't know. I, I, I don't understand any of that stuff, but um, they do make me suspect I've been reading too much Greek mythology lately, but this is the price that we pay for the service we provide. Yeah. Uh, but there is a video game. There is a way within this video game with certain female characters to make a certain set of moves to provide some mugs of, I believe, ambrosia, do a little sweet talking and enjoy a tryst in the, in the midst of the video game. Now it's very chaste. It's all off screen. It's much okay. rotation, right. um, but it is a thing. And within that popular video game, the Hades romance um, actually means something, even if it is okay. a step away from the actual mythology. There's also a new musical called Hades Town, which uh, yeah. is, is very well received. I have not seen it. It's coming to town next month. So I will, I will likely do some, some research there. Um, it's more about the myth of Orpheus, but Persephone plays a role. <clears throat> Heard good things, but uh, it has not been able to come to, to, to this town until uh, some previews in the next few weeks. Not much else with Hades in terms of, of the popular culture. Now, as Pluto, of course, he gets a bit of a little residual effect there, a bit of a halo effect. So, um, But even there, I mean, Pluto, you kind of get a couple of second rate associations. I mean, you get the dog from <laughs> the, the, the lesser Disney <laughs> canon. I really never got a solo project, was always just sort of in the background. And even in, in ast astronomical terms, you had Pluto, which was a planet for so it was long, a planet and then got deplanetized. So even there, I feel like while okay. you have a certain reach into the culture, it ends up coming back to burn you. So right. I think a mixed bag for Hades. I think, you know, the, 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 the notion of what he stands for remains large, but as a figure, uh, we don't see a whole lot of him in pop culture to, to envy. Yeah. All right. That, that's interesting. Uh, right. So on uh, Morpheus, um, obviously, you know, the big one is the Matrix character yes. uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne, yep. uh, who's, you know, in some ways has uh, become more famous than uh, yeah. the God himself. Um, and uh, you can see, though, that it was, you know, it's not just grabbing the name, the, the idea that Morpheus uh you know, the name um, it means Greek for fashion or shaper. Yeah. And uh, the whole red pill, blue pill, you know, uh, kind of mimics the gates. Uh, totally. For Leonieri, so, and he's but, coming to Neo in a realm apart from the bodily realm. So yeah. it's sort of the equivalent of a dream state. So, yeah. yeah so, so, so there's definitely, definitely is that uh, uh, direct association. So Lord Morpheus from there is a neil gaiman series hmm. sandman and the main character is known as dream or lord morpheus hmm. uh, and you know it has some fairly strong parallels it's not exactly 
uh, Morpheus, he, but he is a, a god who is uh, more of a primordial mm-hmm. uh, figure. And that has is a graphic novel series from the 90s and is set to be a Netflix series that is going to debut in uh, late spring, early summer of 2022. Okay. So All right. About, about to be a little bit more famous. Um, Morpheus, yeah. more famous. Yes, there we go. <laughs> Uh, you know he's he, he's a character in the uh, Hercules animated movie, and I mentioned that you know because he is a non-Olympian, he made you know made that into the movie, punching um, above his weight class, as they say. Yeah, yeah, nice. And uh, because there were so many uh, Hades romances, I did look around. Well, you know, does this guy get his due? And there <laughs> is one out there called In the Arms of Morpheus. Okay, and it, In the Arms of Morpheus is actually uh, usually a phrase that can mean either usually means dreaming mm-hmm. um in the 19th century came to mean somebody who was taking morphine mm. uh but this this uh romantic novel is is about dreaming uh and uh woman meets man of her dreams or, or whatever in uh in a dream um and uh, I will say on a pers- more personal note, my daughter, who uh, has for years written stories and teleplays uh, for herself, including some around a fictional high school, uh, oh. which include characters she made up, uh, also characters that are sort of based on fairy tales. Okay. Uh, but there's only one Greco-Roman god that is in there, and uh, that is Morpheus. Is that right? That wow. is a character in, in uh, the stories that she writes. So. Interesting. Personal note. Uh, and the name uh, Morpheus uh, was 1,287th in the year <laughs> 2000. <laughs> okay. Which, which is, really should uh, have been the, the sweet spot after uh, the Matrix came out. Yes, that, that was like a year after right? the Matrix yeah. came, came out. So yeah. that, that should that have been the, the high point. And that is the high point. That was the only year it's ever appeared on the chart. <laughs> so. Didn't make it for that one year. So I'm, 20... I'm sure whatever it is, it's more than Hades, I would guess. <laughs> so that, that so that, uh, that there's some 22 year olds <laughs> going by morph or something. Um, Perhaps a future around. guest star on the yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> so going by their middle names. Um, there is a Morpheus XO blended brandy. Uh, so, you know, there, there's that. Um, and then on the Nero, uh, Neromancy is still a thing. Um, there are still books about Neromancy, how to uh, how to do dream divination, and mm. uh, um, some of them are focused on telling the future. More of them now these days are focused more on an internal, you know, psychological investigation. Um, there is the Oniri Collective, which is a hive-minded entity located in metaphysical space. It is a collective unconscious utilizing the brain power created by sleeping things. According Ooh. to the website. Okay. So I, I, <laughs> I don't know what that is. I just ran across that and I was like, what is this? But there is the Oniri Collective. So you can check that out. I, I thought you were about to say located in Memphis, but no, the <laughs> metaphysical realm. Okay. The metaphysical space uh, utilizing the brain power created by sleeping things. That's fascinating. Yeah, that is it, whatever it is. Um, hive mind, supercomputer, but uh, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And a couple, couple other films. Uh, 2016 indie film about Morpheus, uh, and uh, 
And of course, I, I forgot to mention morphine, uh, which uh, was isolated from the opium plant in oh, yeah. 1817 by a German ph- pharmacist and named uh, after Morpheus. Um, and uh, there's Morpheus skin treatment, which I don't really understand why it's called Morpheus, but it is a micro abrasion skin treatment. Mm. Well, it seems a little rough. Um, there was a Morpheus bed holster. So this is our second week in a row, the holster. And so this is a holster <laughs> that goes between the um, mattress and the box spring. Like there's a little thing that you put between it yeah, that kind yeah. of holds it with it by the weight. And then the, the holster just hangs off there at toddler level. So, and is, so safety is his primary concern. So is yeah. there a, is there a particular thing you're supposed to keep in this or is that uh No, that's a gun. It's a gun holster. Oh, gun holster. Okay, you're going to say like for the remote or for No, no, no. This maybe is some, a gun some, holster. Nice, some body lotion for <laughs> moisturizing your feet. Okay. A gun no, holster. A gun. Well, I mean right right and you know, right there at, you know, right there at toddler level, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh <laughs> interesting design choice. Yeah. Um, you know, but you're sleeping there and, and you don't want to have it under the, under the pillow. The you traditional. Fast. No, you don't yeah. want to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable to sleep that way. So, uh, the, and there is an Oneros, uh, video game, which is a first person surrealist puzzle game. Okay. Which again, I don't know. Those are words that are put together <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know what they mean. So, so those are, those are the things that, uh, that I found uh, about Morpheus. Uh, obviously, um, the literary ones are kind of the, kind of the big ones, um, yeah. Uh, though that it does seem whether from the movie or uh, whatever, there have been some other things that they cut on, you know, um, and, and have adapted that name as commercial products. Yeah. So ah, that's an inch. inch it's a tough one. call, isn't it? You know, because yeah. they think the, the, the strength of Morpheus as a pop culture figure at, based on the matrix, I think is pretty strong at the same time. Yeah. Uh, there are these subcultures there's, there's, Hades is a very big video game. Hades Town is a big musical. Like there, yeah, yeah. People have an interest in in the underworld that remains to this day. I, and yet morphine also very popular. So. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. <laughs> no, um, there's, there's, there's certainly some products that I don't endorse, but there, no. there are there is a uh, together or apart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I th- uh, I think I may have to go. I may have to give Hades the edge on this one though, only because so many of those. The, the pop culture sort of elements that you mentioned are are kind of obscure, right? Fascinating, but but a little bit fringy. Whereas I feel like the the impact of Hades, whether you know him that well or not, permeates it permeates everybody a little bit, right? You know, and uh, you know, you you didn't uh, give too much. Pluto was a planet, you know. I mean, it's true, it but I mean, was, we it almost up, has more infamy for being an ex-planet. Like that's <laughs> that's true. It's, it just carries yeah. the the halo of disgrace from that. And I and I never really got the connection of, of the Disney dog. No, it <laughs> wasn't it like was it Mickey Mouse's pet? Yes, it was, yeah. So a mouse had a pet dog, right? Kind yeah, of and he only that. had the one head I ever saw. So. Right, no no snakes for tails. Right. No eyes. I'm sure his hearing was fine, but no, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I am going to go with you, even though, um, you know, how much, so much of this does ride on that one movie franchise. And even though that movie yeah. franchise is influenced 
by by Morpheus and that idea. It is not him. You know, that's if, true. Yeah. If, if, if you, uh, um, you know, see if this Neil Gaiman thing takes off, which is yeah. a little more directly okay. from him, we, we, we'll, we'll come back I and revise. <laughs> we have to you know go with the information we have available to us that is true as of those, this recording those are our own constraints yep All right and, and yeah so i think uh i will i will go with uh hades for that one too so okay All right so now it's now two one and one and we go into uh matinee idol yeah i've lost track of whose turn it is to go first uh, I think I went first last time. All right. Um, so you can go first if you like. And yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So this, this is, you know, again, another challenge. Uh, yeah. Depending on how close you want to stay on the ancient texts. Uh, you know, if you did a strictly Oniri production, I feel like you could get kind of a, a Fantasia style animated film uh, with minimal talking and classical mm-hmm. music and uh, these floating uh, creatures going around. Uh, if you did Saix and Alcyon, you know, that's maybe a short film or a, mm-hmm. a show in an anthology series uh, where uh, Morpheus takes up kind of the last third of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think what is most interesting about Morpheus is the the journey from an anonymous Oniri, you know, one of thousands uh, to... Uh, head boy, head head of his class, mm-hmm. favored messenger by the gods. Yep. And then later, perhaps the guy running the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's that that arc. So you know, which extends just extending it beyond uh, what we see in the actual classical world. Yeah. Um, you know, so if I'm doing that, it's it's uh, gets his first big break in the Trojan War <laughs> with uh, King Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, does does Zeus a solid? Zeus is impressed by that work. Gets Big a little time. bit of promotion there. Yeah. Um, but eventually, he you know, wants to be recognized as an individual. Uh, can't really rely on his somnolent father. Hmm. So, uh, <laughs> and the, you know, the Olympic gods don't take too much of an interest in promoting new gods uh, unless oh. they've done them some sort of direct favors. Um, so. You know, he doesn't want to go to the king necessarily or, or the, the Roman emperors, maybe too high profile. So he goes to Ovid, uh, you know, with uh, with Phantosis and Isolus, and he goes to him in a dream. Mm. And he pl- he's the one who plants the dream scene of the House of Sleep and gets himself written into the metamorphosis. Yeah. And that is then what gets him his claim to fame then as the other gods are falling away with the rise of christianity uh sees the needs to keep keep dreams going uh you know man can't live on visions of bloody saints alone <laughs> so not for lack of trying though <laughs> yeah so, so he assumes the role of the god of dreams uh and keeps imagination and uh dreams alive and uh Becomes a god of dreams. That's pretty good. The 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 the, the sort of meta level that you had here of him going to Ovid and kind of planting him through his own through the poet's own dreams. Right, and then the and artwork. The poet writes the story, and then you know I, I assume there's some sort of you know that we always see this with the gods that there's some sort of feedback between them and uh, their worship. Um, yes, and, and so uh, that that sort of 
by getting his name out there and, and he gets his name at least in the literary tradition as, as something that is invoked and, and totally uh, that that creates his own power um and so i'm thinking uh honestly anime yeah style yeah. on this yeah uh, you, you get know, some of those great, those trippy visuals going a little, yeah, yeah the a great dream, dream sequences yep. realist imagery think of like movies like my neighbor uh totoro yeah uh, spirited away ponyo yeah. uh all of which are by uh, uh the great anime director hayao uh, Miyazaki, mm-hmm. you know, which, who i think is is uh retiring or he, he was gonna retire and now he's doing one more so maybe we could pull him in it's one last one, round. one 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 last oh. run and then uh, of Tempting. course the the voiceover by lawrence fishborn so ah oh, perfect of course it is yeah, crossover course. appeal yeah so there you go Morpheus one more time. I like as it. You've never seen him before. As you've never <laughs> they wouldn't bring Fishburn back for the new Matrix movie, but yeah, yeah. He'll take it, he'll he'll take it up a notch somewhere else. Thank you very much. Interesting. Wow, I would watch that movie. Yeah. Uh well, I've taken a slightly different route. Um, you know, I mentioned that Hades is not death, but he's more of the landlord of the underworld. <laughs> and Cerberus is a super. So I'm picturing more of a kind of a high concept, almost a supernatural buddy comedy about a guy <laughs> and his dog, right? Who just who run in the place. Um, you know, like like any kind of unlucky but uh, lovable hero. He's been outshone by his siblings. He's been a little unfortunate love. Maybe he lives in kind of, a, you know, his building that he manages is in kind of a rotten neighborhood uh, that everyone wants to move out of. Nobody wants to get in, you know, but they can't get mm-hmm. out once they're there. Let's see, it could be one of the seedier sides of Brooklyn, maybe it's South Boston, but you know, not the, not the nicest part of town. Now I'm not going to work in the kidnapping of the niece to be his consort that, that would not play well with modern audiences. So I'm thinking we'd go a little later in life. The, the business with Persephone is behind him. So let's say he's divorced, but he's trying to piece his life back together. He's got these adorable moments with his three headed dog, just trying to make an honest living, you know, do, do right by the building until he falls for a neighborhood bartender who is a beautiful mixologist at this cocktail place down the street. She's working on the perfect new cocktail. It's going to be her breakthrough. It'll make her famous. It'll be her ticket out of this crummy part of town into a life as a celebrity mixologist. You can almost taste it. It's got Cuban rum, white rum. It's got sugar, lime juice, soda water. It's just missing a certain something. It's on the rocks. It's in a Collins glass. All the ingredients are there, but something's missing. That perfect ingredient. So they finally go out. He's smitten with her. They have a great time on their first night out. He's got all the promise in the world. This is going to work. And it's going to be, it's going to be as the time he's lucky in love. It'll get him out as well of having to run this crappy building with his dog. But of course, on the way out of the bar, they run into his ex-wife. And afterward, the bartender says to him, you know, she seems okay. She seems nice, but I think I'm way cuter. Word gets back to the ex-wife and well, let's just say that the perfect ingredient for that cocktail ultimately does present itself so there's there's my rom-com spin with a supernatural buddy comedy element for the hades story yeah not the ending you're looking for in a rom no a little bit of a <laughs> a, twist. Say, a, a twist, twist to say the least in more ways than Tw- one <laughs> twist the mint um <laughs> all right that's interesting all right yeah two two very different films different yeah. tones yeah did you have, did you have a, a casting in mind or you know I, for some reason I kept coming back to Bobby Cannavale you know you know him the uh, I don't know kind of Italian character actor you know theater okay. background but you you recognize him. he was in Boardwalk right. Empire and a bunch of things but has that kind of hangdog sort of likable you could picture that he's been divorced but you think he's handsome but he's a little bit maybe past his prime okay but charming enough and and you know just 
has the charm enough to be able to kind of seduce with even his obscure, bizarre lifestyle could, could win the heart of this lovely mixologist until, until they don't. <laughs> until he doesn't. No. All right. Um, I had thought of uh, Patton Oswalt, actually. Oh, that's a good call, too. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see Big Fan? Yeah. 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 Basically, just do that again. Just leave the dog. <laughs> just make him call in the talk radio to talk about the Giants every week. Yeah. yeah that's, no, go. that's very good. And he's a good actor, right. too. And that's a, that's an excellent performance, that movie. Yeah. Underrated. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know, right. Andrew. Those are both pretty good movies. So Yeah, uh, those are both interesting movies. Yeah. Tough call. Very different. Very different. All right. Um, yeah, I think I think I'm gonna go. I'm gonna stick with Morpheus on yep. on this one. I feel like the the arc, yep, uh, is good. I you know I did like uh, you know I like making him super. And that I, I I thought you were gonna maybe go prison warden. <laughs> there's, there's there's options. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. options. Uh, I, I you know I I think I'm gonna agree with you. I think the the depth of that story. I think the meta fictional narrative of of planting the idea in the poet and and having the multi you know and having the visual style of of the anime i think is uh that'd be a keeper so i think no, by I a hair's breadth i think we may have a winner i think i think actually we do not have a winner we don't, we don't have we don't have a tie do we <laughs> we have a tie what <laughs> we do. what do we do now wait you yeah, said so it was we, uh, so, uh so it was uh hades won immortal combat and iconography yeah uh morpheus won curriculum deity and matinee idol and then good god was the draw oh my goodness wow Wow, that puts us at two two so we have options here uh we can both agree or we can go to the fate button i think we have to go to the fate button all right i think these guys would want us to let the fates decide. Yes, I, I think that is the classic. Do you have our, our fate tool at the ready? Uh, I do. Uh, here we have, um, so you can see it now. Yes. Our, our two to two uh, score. And there is the fate button. Fate button right right into your spreadsheet. This is very yeah. impressive. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm going to invoke it now. It gets invoked once. Okay. Backseats, just like uh, the ancient gods. Yep. Uh, one of the many ways we are like them. And here we go. Fate, fate is invoked. Oh, Morpheus. Morpheus is, is the fated winner. Look at that. Fated winner. Wow. wow. Fates have spoken. Fates have spoken. Very nice. Well, Morpheus, uh, it was which, a tough which, battle. I did not expect tough battle, though. I, you know, in some ways, I feel like this is fitting for Hades. The just yeah, fits the pattern. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> It just fits the pattern. It just got so close. Yeah, just couldn't quite get it over the finish line. And That's the straws, exactly right. Straws are never in his favor. <laughs> awesome. Well, I guess that gives us our winner. Uh, yes, episode four, Morpheus by just a nudge, uh, takes the cake. So excellent. Uh, yeah. Let's wrap that up. Usual announcements. As always, thanks to Andy Snow for our theme music. Uh, we remain available across multiple platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Of course, we will implore you to like, subscribe, Leave a review. Get us on Twitter, God versus God Pod. God versus God.com is right. the website, all the social media, and some new developments that we haven't mentioned. So the official God versus God playlist, I, I keep forgetting to say this every every episode, is being compiled in Spotify. Every week, right. Andrew and I select a couple of tunes that represent the previous episode. So it's building up to a really nice playlist. Now it's on Spotify only, um, which means I know what you're thinking. Well, what's the Neil Young song on there? And in fact, 
there is a version of Harvest Moon to go back to Demeter, um, but it is a non-Neil Young version. It was right. before Neil took off, but it was still, uh, it's a nice version. And well, yeah, what, I wanted somebody who could sing. So well, I, <laughs> version. Oh, tough crowd. Uh, so go look that up and enjoy that. Uh, but also the full version of the God versus God theme song by Andy Snow is now available on Spotify as well as of February 12th. So spin that whole thing. We, of course, enjoy little snippets of it uh, between our breaks here on the show, but uh, well worth listening to front to back. So encourage that. Um, I think those are all our plugs. Uh, Andrew, right. anything that I'm forgetting? I, yeah, I just want to you know say once again uh, that you know we are thankful for the inspiration we got from Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. Yes. Uh, and that's kind of helped shape how, how we're doing things. So go listen to those pods. Yes. If you have still more need for podcasting <laughs> or, or hours in the day, which yeah. is doubtful, but if you do highly recommend them both. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's call it a, let's call it another day. We'll see you next time on episode five until then, Andrew, always a pleasure, sir. Yes. All right. All right. Thanks everybody. Bye.